Now today, um, we also have something very exciting because this is a world premiere of Keith's sermon. <laughs> Unless you count the first two times that I've heard it. But I asked the question before I read the scripture earlier, have you come to be fed? Have you? I want to remind you a little bit about what being fed is. The purpose that we are fed is not just to eat. The purpose is that it empowers us and strengthens us for our ministry. I, I saw a number of our members at this uh, service that are uh, beginning or in the midst of process of being very pregnant. And when a mother that's growing a child within her eats, it's not just for herself. It's to strengthen the mission she's on. When we eat food, it's to strengthen the mission that we've been on because we are called and sent to go and do what God asks us. So when you feed on the Word of God, it is not simply so you can sit at table and eat. It's to be strengthened and empowered to go do the work to which God has called you. So with that in mind, hear these words, the 121st Psalm. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. This is the word of God to feed the people of God today. Let us pray for our pastor who comes now uh, to exhort it to us. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord God, as Keith uh, comes to this chancel to say your words, uh, we ask that you might strengthen him for this journey, that you might open our hearts to hear it, that we might be fed, that we might be strengthened, and that we might continue or be launched onto a mission for you. In advance of these mighty miracles, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Good to be with you this morning. Um, we will, whatever Mike is talking about next week, I'm going to miss that too, um, along with our H7 team. Now, I know what it is, and it's going to be cool. Um, our H7 team is going to be leaving on Friday to head to Haiti. There's 15 of us that are going down, and 17 of us are coming back. <clears throat> so... No, we are not uh, adopting two Haitian children when we go down there. We're bringing back our girls. We have two girls that are down there. Um, our daughter, Devin, and Leah Schmickley are both down there, and they have been since June. And everyone always asks, how are they doing? And I'll say this. Depends on the hour you talk to them, okay? Overall, I'll say they're doing great. But people say, are they homesick? You know, what's the, and, and, and yeah, you know, sometimes they are. But sometimes they say this is the greatest place ever in the history of the world. We never want to leave. One thing I do know that they miss are sermons in English. I know they miss that. So uh, we're, we're excited to, uh, to be with them. But we'll be gone for, for the next two Sundays because we return uh, the following, I think, Sunday or Monday. I don't even know when we get back. I just know when we go. Lord willing. So it's going to be a great time. And thank you for your prayers and for getting us there and for everything that you've done to support us. And I know that, uh, that we will bring God's blessing down there on behalf of Marian Methodist. So 
Let's talk about Psalm 121. When I was preparing this message, I kind of stared at, at this Bible verse, these, these Bible verses for a while because this was a little bit of a challenging uh, text for me to preach a sermon on because most of my sermons anyway, I think, um, probably because it's most of the sermons that I like to listen to, are all about, if you really bring it down, they're about stuff you're supposed to do because you love God. Okay, I mean, let's just be basic. A lot of sermons are like that. They're, you know, God's awesome, now here's what you're supposed to do. And we, we break that down in many different ways. We talk about it in many different ways. And yet, as I went through the 121st Psalm, I couldn't seem to find the things that we were supposed to do when I read that Psalm. It, it, was, it was driving me crazy. And the reason why I, I realized that it was driving me crazy is because this isn't a Psalm about anything that we're supposed to do. This isn't a psalm that's about like my life or your life or even the Israelites' lives or King David's life. This is a different kind of psalm. And I think it was starting to get to me a little bit because I'm so used to, you know, really to coming to church and hearing sermons and preaching sermons that ultimately, let's face it, kind of turn back the focus to myself. You know, that's a lot of the sermons we listen to, isn't it? We, we listen to stuff that, that t- teaches us about ourselves so that we can be a better Christian. And I think that's kind of the American way to approach Christianity, you know. And, and I think that that's okay sometimes, but I think there are some pitfalls that go along with that type of, of faith experience that always brings it back to you. And, and here are some of the things that I was wrestling with on my own. Pitfalls I've fallen into, and maybe some pitfalls that you fall into as well when most of what we learn about in the Bible or preach about or whatever comes back to stuff we're supposed to do because we love Jesus. And the first one is this. One common pitfall is believing that God is simply watching us and not active in our lives. you ever believe that? Do you ever believe and feel like that in your faith? That God's way up there and you're way down here and he's just kind of watching your life and just kind of checking things out and seeing what's going on, but you don't really experience this active presence of God in your everyday life. I mean, I think a lot of people, if they're honest, will say that that's kind of their experience sometimes when it comes to their faith in God. And, And it's easy to believe that if you're always looking just around your own life and at yourself. The second pitfall that we can fall into is this, believing that God's love for us is dependent on what we do. When, you, when, when I hear a lot of sermons that talk about stuff I'm supposed to do for God or because I love God, then inherently, maybe subconsciously, even though I know better in my mind, I find myself believing that God's going to love me more or less depending on how well I behave, right? If I do the things I'm supposed to do, then God's going to look at me and he's going to give me a big thumbs up, right? He's going to love me a whole lot. But if I do things that disappoint God, that, that are disobedient to God, then his love for me is going to sort of fade away and diminish a little bit. And, and that's a danger that we fall into when, when, we, when we focus too much on ourselves. The third thing, and I know I fall into this one, maybe you do too, is this, relying on ourselves to provide for and protect us, right? I mean, I'm just kind of built that way. I'm, I, I see something that has to get done, and I believe that, like, okay, I got to go do that. You know, Pastor Mike and I share that in common. When there's, when there's stuff going on, I think this church is a good example of a church like that. When there are things that we see in the community and need to be filled, or something that has to get done, we tend to just believe that 
it's up to us. So we jump in and we give. We jump in and we serve. We jump in and we go because we, we have this belief somewhere that like we're more important maybe than we really are. And that the whole kingdom of heaven is dependent on us doing what we're supposed to do and at least, at the very least, taking care of ourselves, right? I mean, we believe that old adage that, you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves. That's not really anywhere in the Bible, but we've sort of adopted that as like an honorary Bible verse, right? So we, we can rely too much on ourselves. Oh, this is a big one. Number four pitfall we fall into. Convincing ourselves that God owes us because we're good. You ever do that? You ever work hard, sacrifice, give, serve? You, you, you know, you're Methodist, so we, we, you know, we, we sign up for stuff, right? I mean, we already had clipboards flying around the service, right? We, that's, that's, that's our nature. We do stuff, right? We come to church. We, we're, 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 we're faithful to, to what God's called us to do. And if we're honest, there's a part of us probably somewhere that believes that because we do these things, that you know, God should answer our prayers a little bit more than somebody who, who didn't sign the clipboard, right? Or didn't teach Sunday school or didn't send somebody to camp or whatever it is that we, that we do that we think everybody else should be doing. Let's face it, that can kind of happen, can it? We can believe that God owes us a little bit more. You know, I used to have a friend who would tell me all the time, Pastor Keith, you got to say a prayer for me, right? Like, why can't you say a prayer for you? Well, he'll listen more to you than to me because I'm bad and you're good, right? Yeah, okay. You know, the truth is this. God doesn't owe us anything beyond what he's already given us, right? He's given us so much. I could preach about that for hours and hours, but this is a short sermon today. I knew the laughter was coming, all right? If you're a visitor, I'm known as the, the uh, not just the short preacher, but the, the short preacher, right? 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 Uh, Pastor Mike's going wrong. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> anyway. But this is the worst one. The worst pitfall I think we can fall into when most of our theology and focus of our faith is, is kind of turned back on ourselves is this. Just not knowing enough about God. I mean, that's just the straight up truth. We are experts at trying to know more about ourselves, but we are really, really bad about knowing more stuff about God. I mean, if you go into a, a popular bookstore, even like a popular Christian bookstore, the the, the, the most popular section is often, you know, the self-help section, right? Where we can learn about ourselves and, and, and all that. And, and how many people are going over to like the theology section where the books are about God and not us? I heard a preacher one time say, look, half of the problem of the, the North American Christian church is this. We read too many books about ourselves and not enough books about God. You know, when's the last time you actually bought a book that was just about God? Not about how you could be a better this or a better that or a happier this or a more effective that or a more efficient this or a skinnier that or whatever or a richer this or richer that, but just a book that was about God, right? Not bestsellers typically because we are addicted to learning about us. And that's one of the pitfalls we fall into when we, when we go down that road. And that's why I struggle because these are my pitfalls too. That's why I struggle with Psalm 121 because this isn't a psalm about any of those things, is it? This isn't a psalm about what I'm supposed to do. Well, there's one thing. This isn't a song, a song or a psalm about any stuff that like, I can take home today and incorporate into my life. This is a psalm about not what I do or what you do, but about what God does. And perhaps that's why it's so important. It's a psalm about what God does. All that we're told to do 
In the first verse is this. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hey, that's it. That's the one thing that the psalmist says that we're to do or that he declares he does in unison with all of us is this. I lift up my eyes. I look up. Now, that is a metaphor for looking toward God, right? That's what we have to do. We've got to look toward God. And that's the hardest part because we're not very good at looking up. Most of us are looking down, right? What do you see when you look down? You see yourself. And that's what a lot of us do. Even as Christians, we look way too much at ourselves. We self-obsess, don't we? We, we obsess about the things that we're not very good at and that we think that God is upset with us about. We obsess about that. We obsess about the things that we're really good at. And, and we obsess about the things that we want to do. And we obsess about the things that we wish we hadn't done. And we obsess about what we have and what we don't have and, and, and how much we do this and how much we should do that. We are just obsessed with ourselves. We're looking down. And this psalmist says that's not where you should be looking. Your answers don't come from looking down looking at yourself, which of course flies in the face of our culture. Our culture is all about looking down. Our culture is all about just look within yourself. Figure out who you really are. Follow your heart. Understand yourself. Understand everything about who you are and why you are, what you are. And that sounds good, but you want to know the truth? I'll tell you what the Bible says about that. The Bible says nobody ever got anywhere by looking in themselves. Because you want to know what's in ourselves? According to Jesus, wickedness. According to Jesus, things that are bad. I don't know about you, but if I look within myself too much, I get kind of disgusted. Because I see in my own heart the selfishness, the pride, the fear. The greed, the arrogance, whatever you want to see, that's what Jesus said is inside of you. Pharisees were arguing with him one day about eating with unwashed hands, as the traditions of the Pharisees. And he said, it's not what you eat with your hands that makes a person defiled. It's what comes from within a person that defiles them. You see, within us it lies wickedness and sin. We don't gain enlightenment by looking within. But unfortunately, that's what we're taught. We're taught that the key to our own happiness is to, to churn this thing up from the inside out. And, and, and I get that, but that's not what the scriptures talk about at all. A lot of us also, instead of looking down all the time, we, we like to look around, don't we? Are you a person that looks around all the time for your answers? You look towards your circumstances you look towards what's happening in your life, right? I look around to see, hey, how am I doing in compared to other people? How are the things of my life? How's my house? How's my yard? How's my bank account? How's my portfolio? How's my career going? How are my relationships? How are my kids doing? Are they as, as good as other people's kids? How are, how are this? How are that? We look around a lot to try to find our answers, don't we? Well, what do other people think, you know? <clears throat> I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look around to see how I'm doing. You know, we'll post a little thing on Facebook or whatever, and then we always make sure, hey, are people liking this? Are people digging this? Are they sharing it? Are they retweeting it? We'll find tricks to make them share stuff. We'll, we'll find tricks to make them do this because it makes us look around. We say, hey, I'm validated now, right? 
Nobody found their answers by looking around. The psalmist says this, I look up to get my answers. And why? Because who do I see when I look up? I see God. And God is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the maker of heaven and earth. This is his credentials so that you have the ability to look up. He made everything. Now, if you want to know about anything, right, talk to the person who made it. If I wanted to know about this drum set and why it's the shape that it is and why it's the size that it is and made out of the type of wood that it's made out of and set up the way that it's made out of, I can't ask this drum set. It's not going to tell me anything. I have to go find the person that designed that. I have to go find the engineer who figured out the way to to bend the wood to make the tone sound the right way. I have to find the person whose idea it was in the first place. And according to this psalm, the person whose idea the entire universe was and the earth and everything in it, including you, is God. That's to whom you are looking when you look up. If you want to know the expert about anything in this universe, you should look to God because it all begins and ends with Him. There is no one more authoritative about anything than the one who thought it up and existence was God's idea. The universe is God's design and fulfills God's purpose and God has total control and authority of His creation. Now, I know this messes with some of us right now, doesn't it? Because we think about God and then we think about our world And man, we watch the news and we go, there is some messed up stuff in this world, isn't there? So how can God be worthy of glory when this world and universe is filled with so much evil? Right? You ever think like that? I mean, it's one of the classic arguments against the existence of God. It's called the problem of evil. And the problem of evil goes like this. If God is all-knowing, all good and all powerful, then God would know about all the evil in the world. He would have the ability to stop it, and he would, right? Because he's all-knowing, all good, and all powerful. But because there is evil in the world, therefore, God does not exist, right? God does not exist. Now, that's a very popular argument with, especially with the new atheists of our culture today, that are always telling us that, well, you know, this world is a disaster, and if God were real, he would fix it all. So therefore, he's not. So you might think, why should I look toward this God who made heaven and earth when this earth is such a mess? Well, let me talk to you about this argument for a moment, and I know this will resonate with some of you. I had somebody accuse me of spying on their conversations with their husband this week. We were talking about that. How did you know? Right? I don't really do that, but sometimes things just, just happen that way. Now, here's the thing. If you look at this argument and you consider it, it really self-destructs because this argument only works if there is a God in the first place. You see, it's based on the idea, this argument, that there's a moral code that exists that defines what is good and what is evil. And then what we do is we judge God according to this moral code and say God does not live up to our own understanding of what good and evil are. Right? Now, here's where this falls apart. How does anybody, how does anybody without the belief in God know what good and evil is in the first place? 
If we don't have God, then we don't have a moral code of good and evil. All we have are a bunch of people who decide what they like and what they don't like. Right? But there's nothing greater or, or ultimate about it. It's just opinions. I used to go around in circles with this, with this kid in my youth group a long time ago about this idea. Because he would just argue with me that there was no such thing as like absolute good and absolute evil. So I would say things like, hey, what about like, you know, the Holocaust? Adolf Hitler, was Adolf Hitler evil? Is what he did evil? And he would say, because that's the kind of the safest thing that you can say evil is, right? I mean, no one's going to disagree with that. Wrong. He said, well, it was right to him. And I'm like, what do you mean it was right to him? Well, he thought it was right, so therefore it was right to him. I'm like, well, do you think it was evil? Well, of course I think it was evil, but that's how I feel about it. But to him, he thought it was right, so it was right to him. Now, before you think this kid's like some kind of crazy person, I want you to just stop for a second and understand this is the culture we live in, people. The culture we live in right now, all day long, wants to tell you that there's no such thing as ultimate evil and ultimate good. It's whatever is right for you and whatever is right for me. And the people, what I find very hypocritical, that are the most vocal in denying this whole sense of, of moral evil and moral good are the same ones that cry out injustice whenever something happens that they don't agree with, right? When something happens that goes against their belief, they're the ones who cry out, that's not fair, that's not just, that's not right. You see, that type of thinking falls apart the minute that something bad happens to you. You can't live in a world in a functional way without these ideas of good and evil because society will not work. And the reason why is because that's God's design. The reason why there's a moral code of good and evil and that we know what it is instinctively is because God has written that on the hearts of humanity and in all of his creation. It's always existed in human beings, in every culture, in every society, in every civilization. Every culture, you will not find a culture that has not had a sense of moral good and moral evil. So this argument falls apart. The truth is, this psalm reminds us that even in the midst of evil and pain and suffering and injustice... We can look to God because he's the one who made it all and he's the one who can fix it all. This is the psalmist. This is the God the psalmist is pointing us to look up to. Verse three, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now let's talk about this. What does it mean that God will never slumber nor sleep? What does that mean? Well, I think it means at least three things. The first thing that it means is this, that God has unlimited energy. He has unlimited energy. Does anybody else here in this room have unlimited energy? None of us do, right? But we have to remember that even though we might get tired from time to time, even though we might run out of steam for for others in lives or for things that we have to do or for needs that may come to us, God himself never runs out of energy. We have this little device in in our house. It's this little Bluetooth speaker. Right? You know what those are? You, you, you can stream wirelessly from your phone or whatever to listen to music. 
and you plug this thing in, it charges itself up, and then you unplug it, and you can put it anywhere in your house. Well, we have one of those or whatever, and Stella and I, one day, we were working on a project in the house, and we had this thing, and it was blasting music, and we were painting or doing whatever, and right in the middle of, like, Estelle's favorite chorus from, like, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, right, this little voice appears, and it says, low battery, right? Like, what the heck was that? This speaker was talking to us. And a couple of minutes later, low battery, right? And it's warning us, saying, I'm running out of power. You better plug me back in. You know, otherwise, you're not going to hear any more music anymore, right? No more Janet Jackson blasting through your house, right? What a horrible thing. Anyway, you can tell when someone's running the phone in my house who the music is. So I thought that was kind of funny. So, like, as we were working throughout the day, you know, getting tired and stuff, when I was starting to get a little tired, I would just kind of be painting, and then I'd be like, low battery, <clears throat> You know, she thought it was cute, like twice. <laughs> but so now sometimes like I'll begin a project and we'll be starting something. and I'll be like, oh, and like five seconds into it, I'm like, low battery. And she'll kind of give me a look like, don't you start that, you know. But God never has that problem. He never has low battery. He never runs out of energy. He's always got enough of what he needs to watch over and to take care of his people. The, the second thing that it means that God will never slumber or sleep means this. God never takes a day off from caring for you. He never takes a day off from caring. Hopefully all of us take a day off at some point in time. You know, but like I suspect, many of us, we really never get a true day off from taking care of somebody's issues, right? But, but you know, some days we feel like we just want to put that sign up on our door that says, not here right now, come back in 15 minutes, Right? You ever find that sign when you want to go talk to somebody and they're not available or you send the email that's an urgent matter and you get the automatic response, you know, sometimes I think I'd just like to put one on there that says, I really don't care about what you want to email me about right now, you know, try again later. I don't think that would go over so well, but sometimes that's where you come from in life. You're just like, I can't deal with another person's stuff right now. God never feels that way. You and I, we feel that way sometimes. But God never does that. He never takes a day off from caring for you. You never have a moment where you try to get a hold of God and he says, I'm sorry, I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. He'll always respond. He's always present. He's always there with full energy, ready to be there for you. He never takes a day off. And number three, he never slumbers or sleeps means that he's always available. God is always available to you. At any moment you need God, you can cry out to God and He is there. He will never cut you off, put you off, or shut you out. Do you do the same for Him? Right? Does God ever find that sign on your door when He shows up at your heart? Come back later? You see, God's always there. He's always ready to help. He's always ready to be with you because He loves you. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Verse 6, the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, these words had, of course, meaning to the Israelites because, you know, their heritage was a heritage of a wandering nomadic people who wandered through the desert, who had to be shielded from the sun. That was their most present danger was the heat from the sun. And God provided for them a pillar of cloud and, and, and smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them through the day and through the night. And the idea is this, that God doesn't go to go you know, go home at the end of the day. He watches over you during the daytime and during the night. The sun will not harm you. The moon will not harm you. 
This psalm reminds us that the environmental dangers that we face are not beyond God's ability to protect. Day or night, he protects us. Now, you may not think that this relates to you because, you know, we have air conditioning and roofs and stuff. And we're like, what's the moon have to do with anything? But there was a, an ancient belief that the moon, if you were exposed to it too much, would drive you crazy and you'd lose your mind. Have you ever noticed that the word lunar and lunatic come from the same kind of word? It's true. My mom was a labor and delivery nurse for many, many years. And when she would go on her night shift, if it was a full moon, she'd be like, oh, we're going to have some babies born tonight, you know? And we still say that, don't we? When we look outside, it's a full moon up. There'll be crazy people out tonight because we, we sort of have that belief worked into us. And what the psalmist is saying is that God can protect you from the harshness of the day and he can protect you from losing your mind, right? If you keep looking to God, he will do that. Now, Let's look at verses 7 and 8. These are the tough ones. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now, I know a lot of us read that and we go, yeah, okay. There, you just lost me. Because I've had some harm in my life, right? Anybody here ever experienced harm in their life? And you go, where was God when that happened to me? Where was God when my loved one became sick? Where was God when I lost my job? And we can say all we want, all these happy, God's going to do all this stuff for me. But, you know, where's the reality of that? It becomes difficult. Some of us want to hold God to this standard and say, well, in your Bible, God, it says that you will keep me from all harm. And if it says that in the Bible, then I guess that's what God says, right? But does it mean that your life is free from all suffering, pain, and death? I think it depends a lot on how you read the Bible and how you look to understand it. Because there are also a lot of verses that talk about persevering in the face of suffering. Not losing your faith, but overcoming the evil of the world. There are also plenty of verses where God promises judgment and wrath and destruction as well. Do we claim those also? Jesus was sitting with some of his friends, his disciples, and they were by the temple and he said to them, look, you know what? Every one of these rocks here that builds this great temple is going to be ripped down and bad things are going to happen. They were like, what are you talking about? Matthew 24, he says things like this. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see that you are not alarmed. Such thing must happen. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. He says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, I don't know about you. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You might say, wow, well, is that talking about like some like apocalyptic scenario in like a million years or whatever? No, Jesus was talking to his friends about what was going to happen to them. Because in A.D. 70, just not too long after these events... The Roman emperor sent his commander Titus with his armies into the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed and burned the entire city. They knocked the temple down, they ransacked the place, and they killed over a million people in Jerusalem. 
So yeah, that happened too. So what do you do with that? See, the answer is this. You've got to look at the context. You've got to look at the context. Who was the original intended audience? And what were they going through? It's an important fact to consider. It's not good enough just to say, well, it's in the Bible, therefore it applies to me here in 2016 in Marion, Iowa for the rest of my life. The Bible says lots of things. Some of the things you would not put on a coffee cup or cross-stitch on a pillow. Some of the things you wouldn't want me to talk about when your little kids were still here. Right? So what is the context of this psalm? Simon kind of shared with us a little bit about what it was. But I want to, I want to talk to you about it because I think it's important for us to understand. This is a psalm that was a worship liturgy sung by the pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem to worship the living God. This is a song about hope and protection in life's journey and on a literal journey to go where God has called you to go. Now listen to that. If you want to be on this journey, you need to understand God's inviting you onto this journey, but you got to go where he's called you to go. And if you go where God's called you to go, then you have the promise of God's protection and the promise that the maker of heaven and earth will watch over you. It doesn't mean that you will be free from any kind of suffering or pain. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way that you want it to go. But it means that the maker of heaven and earth is the one leading you and going with you. And you can trust him. This was a song of hope and a declaration of praise to God. Not a circumstantial promise that everything was always going to be great in your life. Remember, you're not supposed to judge that by looking down or looking around. You judge that by looking up. And if you're on God's path, if you're on God's journey, then whatever that journey might be, as difficult as it might be, if you're going through it, he's watching you. He's watching over you. And there will be nothing that happens beyond his control. So I invite you today to consider that. I invite you to ask ask that question of yourself. Where am I going in my life? Is my path one of God's journey with God's people to worship God? Or am I off left field someplace, focused so much doing this and doing this that I don't know where to go? It's never too late for you to get on God's path. It's never too late for you to make this psalm your psalm. And it starts by looking up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our obsession with self and constantly looking within ourselves or at ourselves, Lord. And help us instead to be people, Lord, who look to you. Forgive us, God, for looking around all the time at our validation of others to make ourselves feel okay. Or the constant comparison that we do to find out if we're up to where we should be in life. Lord, help us instead recognize that we belong to you. We are your creation. We are your design. We fit your purpose and we are for you. God, help us today to get on that journey, that journey towards you, so that these psalms can be our promise and hope as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have a look at this video.
And before you go, uh, we have one, one specific uh, precious act to do at, at worship today. You know, we're a, we're a church with big dreams for God and big goals, and so sometimes we get to do really big things. And as Keith mentioned earlier, this is our seventh trip to Haiti, so we call it H7, that's leaving uh, uh, a few days. And so we pray our, our uh, missionaries out, so I'm going to ask those missionaries that are going to Haiti to come here and spread out across the front. There's 15 of them, and uh, only uh, about half of them are here today because uh, from very spread out, we're going to need some room here. There you go, don't all go to one side, stop right there. There you go, there you go. There you go. So you go shoulder to shoulder when I say spread out. Good job. All right. All right. Awesome. And what we love to do here, once Keith gets settled, you know, he, he said in his sermon, something's driving him crazy, and I thought, gosh, you people have no idea how short a drive that is. Um, <laughs> and we love him so. The prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. If any among you are launching on something great, let the elders of the church lay hands and pray. Come on forward, some of you. Let's put some hands on these people. Lord God, as these, along with the others that number to 15, leave to Las Cahabas, Haiti, from here, we give you praise and thanks that, first, we're a church and a community that has ability to send missionaries. And we know, Lord, that uh, these 15 cannot solve every problem in that little neighborhood in Haiti, but they shall do what we corporately can do. To go and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world is their charge. It is their dream. It is their aspiration. And through the teaching of little children, uh, through the mending of human hearts, and through their very presence, we ask, Lord, that your spirit might flow so that many might come to know Christ, not only through the work that they do next week, but through the work of those they touch next week that are coming in the generations to come. Lord, it's been one of our prayers that we can help a small area of Haiti pull itself up by its own bootstraps, by your strong hand, and by the work of this church and our other partners. Bless this team as they go to execute that plan for your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you. Pray for them all the weeks they're gone. We'll see you next week.